Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, thrilled to have you with us. In this episode, fast-moving developments in the war between Hamas and Israel. And there's a question that very few people seem to want to ask. And of course, who stuck his foot in his mouth yet again? You know who. That's who. The House Speaker's sweepstakes and the self-destruction of the Republican Party. A truly frightening study on climate change. George Santos, what, again? And the labor market seems to chill just a little bit. Shall we? Surely. The war between Israel and Hamas continues unabated, even as various governments outside the Middle East, inside and outside the Middle East, try and broker some form of de-escalation. Now, the Israelis, I'm sure most of you know, gave the more than 1 million residents of northern Gaza 24 hours to move south. That was at the end of last week as they prepare the Israelis to commence a ground offensive against Hamas. That deadline, as I mentioned, has come and gone. And there are reportedly safe passages created by Israel to facilitate the movement of Gazans. There was one report, however, that civilians had been fired on by using or as using, as they were using, one of those passages and that 12 people were killed. An official of the Israeli Defense Force told the BBC that that report was fake news. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken met with Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman as part of a four-day swing through the Middle East. His statements on the conflict are pretty much what you'd expect from Israel's Western allies, which would be this. Israel has the right to respond to the Hamas attack, but the IDF should take precautions to avoid killing civilians. Back home in the States, there have been both pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli rallies in cities across the country, particularly in New York City. However, to me, all of this, and again, the developments are very, very fast moving. There seems to be some effort to move Gazans out of southern Gaza into Egypt with the acquiescence of the Egyptian government and the Israelis, but it hasn't really come to fruition just yet. But the question for me, actually it's more than one question, but a very, very big question is this. If you start from the premise that last week's attack on Israel included acts of barbarism, or the attack itself was an act of barbarism, it's obvious that Hamas has a lot to answer for. Killing babies and attacking a peaceful music concert are not the acts of a civilized people, no matter what their grievance. The next question is, can the Israelis react without sinking to the level of barbarism the world is decrying in Hamas? I'm just asking the question. I am not prepared to provide the answer. That's up to the Israelis. And when I say up to the Israelis, it is the Israelis who are preparing a response, actually are in the middle of doing a response. It's not just preparing one. They are preparing, however, a ground offensive. They do not have to, the Israelis, act in a barbaric manner. But if their stated intent is to destroy Hamas, they may feel they have licensed to act in a brutal fashion. Now, I'm not saying that they have license to act or think they have license to act in a barbaric fashion, but they may feel 
they have a license to act in a brutal fashion. There are some reports, not all verified, but some reports that, for example, say that in some of the Israeli settlements, Palestinians have been singled out and killed by settlers. Not a lot of news about it, and some of it, if not most of it, cannot be verified. But the bottom line is, brutality sometimes begets brutality. It's a human reaction. It's not something that is unnatural. The Israelis were attacked. It is not outside the realm of thought to say they're going to react in a hard, maybe even in some cases, brutal fashion. But here's the crux of the problem. Hamas has as its statement of purpose the elimination of the state of Israel. That obviously is not going to happen. The Israelis now have as their statement of purpose the elimination of Hamas. That may, may necessarily not happen either. No matter how many members of their leadership, and I'm talking about Hamas's leadership, are killed by the IDF. Now the Israelis generally say that Hamas uses Palestinian civilians. In other words, they hide among Palestinian civilians, therefore making it more difficult for the IDF to actually separate them from Palestinian civilians and bring them to justice, whatever that justice may be. To get an idea of Hamas's thinking and their reason for launching this attack last weekend, I would strongly recommend reading an article in The New Yorker titled, What Was Hamas Thinking? It's by Adam Brasgon and David D. Kirkpatrick. They've actually talked to Hamas political figures to get an idea of their strategy and their reasoning. Quite frankly, even after reading the piece, I'm not clear on either. Yet it points out that Hamas has in recent years tried to modify its anti-Semitic rhetoric about Israel and even made some down-low arrangements with the Israelis over security concerns on both sides. Was this to lead Israel and the Israeli government into a false sense of security? No matter what the strategy, it has certainly created chaos and loss of life, and we need to make sure we understand this. It has created, that attack by Hamas has created chaos and loss of life for the very Palestinians whose rights Hamas says it champions. And that may be a best case scenario. In their desire to wipe out Hamas, they may not be too particular about military excesses that cost Palestinian civilian lives. So who wins here? It seems no one. Except maybe politicians and the military on both sides, as well as those whose funding, and I'm talking about Iran, whose funding allows the participants to keep killing each other. And that's Iran on one side, but it's also the U.S. and other Western powers on the other. But here's an X factor, and I've been saying this for a minute. Most people do not know, because everybody shifted their focus from the Ukrainian war to the Israeli-Gaza war. But it is important to note that the Qataris, the government of Qatar, has been able to negotiate between the Ukrainians and the Russians, mortal enemies at this point, 
the release of Ukrainian children who were being held in Russian-occupied territories. They have been reunited with their families with the help of the Qataris. And I saw one commentator just today say that Qatar has become a hub of these types of negotiations. They've been very successful at it. I said from the very beginning that the Qataris might be the answer to trying to sort out how to deal with the Israeli-Gaza conflict. I don't know, and maybe I'm wrong, but it certainly would seem to me to be worth a shot, and maybe it's even happening on the down low. Oh yeah, before I forget, there's a small matter of how one former president has weighed in on this conflict. In another statement that might lead one to question if he's become further unhinged, Donald Trump called Hezbollah, who, by the way, has been lobbing rockets into Israel, very smart. He also criticized Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for the security and intelligence lapses leading up to the Hamas attack. While reasonable people will disagree over the stewardship of Netanyahu over the long run, calling Hezbollah smart for lobbing rockets into Israel smacks of a person who's lost the front page and is seeking to get it back. And again, this is a matter, in my judgment, of critical thinking. Donald Trump doesn't like that this Hamas-Israel conflict has pushed him off the front page, has pushed his campaign off the front page. So he says something outrageous, and next thing you know, he's got the front page again. He's been almost universally criticized for his remarks, but as usual, his spokesman doubled down. I guess the old adage, it's better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than open it and remove all doubt, truly applies here. Up next, the GOP firing squad, circular firing squad, nominates Jim Jordan as the next House Speaker. Guess what they're doing now? This is The Intersection. You're listening to Mark Riley. It's the only podcast where the world Welcome back to The Intersection. The car crash that is the Republican Party in the House of Representatives is turning out to be the gift that keeps on giving. The GOP is looking to finally elect a speaker after Kevin McCarthy was unceremoniously deposed. It looks for the short term that House Brahmins have decided to back Ohio arch-conservative Jim Jordan. Right now, He's way short of the 217 votes he needs to win the gavel. That's because some of his colleagues are refusing to back him. They might be the ones that are portrayed as sane. And what are Jordan's backers doing? Trying to browbeat the holdouts with threats. How else do you win the speakership? Threats to run hard right conservatives against more moderate incumbents. Drumbeats of criticism on social media. You know, typical right-wing bullying. And what are they falling in line for? Will Jim Jordan be any better than the last guy in the job? Even if he does eventually get the gig, is he going to bully colleagues every time he wants to get something done, like stop a legitimate bill from becoming law? I've said before that these House Republicans will go down in history as the pathetic losers they are. 
Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan? Is this really the best the GOP can do? I've got news for them. If and when the Democrats gain the majority in the House, no matter how slim that margin might be, the Speaker will be someone of integrity and genuine concern, and I do mean genuine concern, for the American people. His name is not Jim Jordan, it's Hakeem Jeffries. And finally, the labor market is cooling. What does that mean? And yet another frightening report about climate change slash global warming. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, you're here with Mark Riley. It's the voice that you know and the information you can trust. Welcome back to The Intersection. As we all know, the Christmas season will be here before we know it. And that's the time retailers make the year's serious money. In some cases, one-fourth of their annual income comes during that holiday season. So why are so many retailers like Macy's and Dick's Sporting Goods hiring fewer seasonal workers? It wasn't that long ago. They were luring workers in with incentives. Now it looks like workers are going to have to look a little bit harder to find that holiday job this year. And we kind of know who those seasonal workers are. Many of them are college kids who take time off for the Christmas season and they want to find a job and make a little bit of extra money. It may be more difficult this year around. Some economists attribute this to the labor market floating down to normal after the post-pandemic boom in spending. Judging from statements from businesses that plan to hire the same number of workers, retention has become an important aspect of their holiday business plans. That, by the way, is good news for workers, since their salaries have gone up recently. However, in certain retail areas, consumers have found fewer floor workers around to help them with questions or recommendations. What do I mean by that? Simply that when you walk into a certain place, you see that there are where there used to be a number of people who, I won't say accost, but certainly walk up to you when you walk inside and say, hi, I'm so-and-so. How can I help you today? What are you looking for today? That sort of person-to-person -person customer assistance. Well, if you have fewer seasonal workers, there are going to be fewer of those kinds of people working in a lot of retail stores. Now, whether this signals a slowing of the overall labor market remains to be seen. Suffice to say, hiring has exceeded expectations over the past little while. I've always seen rising wages and employment as a good thing, but economists tend to blame those good things for workers, uh, good things for workers, that is, with rising inflation. That has been a problem for some time as well, and it doesn't seem as though, even though it's slacked up a little bit, that inflation seems to be on the upturn again. If hiring is slowing down, does that mean inflation will too? Time will tell. And finally, not to be a climate change alarmist, but it looks as though if some scientists are to be believed, 2023 will be the hottest year on record 
since they started keeping records back in the 19th century. What's scary, however, is the notion that the world is getting hotter faster. That fact seems lost on some Western politicians who will do just about anything to curry favor by rolling back commitments to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Climate scientists have a tendency sometimes to use charts, graphs, and Celsius to Fahrenheit year-to-year -year comparisons to make the point that the globe's climate is changing. However, I think kind of people's brains tend to lock when they hear that sort of thing. But here's one thing that works for me. In the past, people warming us, warning us, that is, about climate change spoke in terms of the effect on our grandchildren, or at worst, on our children. Now, they're talking about its effect on us in the here and the now. I've talked about the unintended consequences of climate change before. One is migration that virtually every Western country fears and tries to legislate against. People in the global South are experiencing warming more acutely than those in Northern countries. They see their only means of escaping the droughts, the fires, the flooding, the extraordinarily high temperatures that accompany climate change. The only way they see as fixing all that is to move north. That means that taking the lead on climate change is now an imperative, not just an option. Climate scientists are saying that their predictions from several years ago are starting to come true. The real question is what can ordinary people do to fight climate change? Solutions have run the gamut from the practical to the absolutely outlandish, like taxing meat, for example. The central question, however, remains. Are people, nations, and yes, governments prepared to make the drastic changes to their lives to slow and maybe even neutralize greenhouse gas emissions, as one example? Some scientists believe that if the world gets emissions down to net zero, global warming will stop. The New York Times article that contains much of the information I'm using here says there is some hope. It mentions a massive increase in investment in clean air technologies over the past decade. That's from $300 billion a decade ago to $1.8 trillion today. In some parts of the world, solar is the cheapest form of electricity. Which brings me to another subject, the existing fossil fuel order will not go down without a fight. They'll tell you electric cars are bad for the environment, that ultra-low emission zones like the one in London are bad for working people, and they're creating incentives to use other ways of traveling like bikes and walking, for example, are bad for cities. Don't pay them any mind. We are no longer in a fight for the lives of our successors. It's us we must now look to save. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.